News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC, the New Yorkiest podcast from the nonprofit newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city. I'm Dr. Christina Greer here with Katie Honan, reporter for the city. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, Katie. <laughs> uh, well, whatever time it is when you're listening to this, that's good, right. That time of day. Hi, Chrissy. I'm covering all the bases. Uh, later in this episode, uh, we're going to have Harry Siegel interviewing New York Times reporter Dodi Stewart about the disappearing late night and all night spots in New York City. So you'll hear from Harry a little bit later on. From Wohop to Whitestone Lanes, moving away from the 24-hour-a-day schedule. And we can talk a little bit about our favorite late night spots uh, and what this could mean for the city now that sometimes the city does sleep, apparently. And in <laughs> other news... Puerto Rico was devastated by Hurricane Fiona, which left the island without power. And so Puerto Rico, in many ways, is considered the sixth borough. Mayor Eric Adams is expected to discuss the city's response and ways to help later on Wednesday. And I even saw, Katie, that Governor Hochul is sending some Spanish-speaking officers down to Puerto Rico to assist with the efforts. I believe state troopers. Yeah, as we saw with Hurricane Maria five years ago, uh, New York you know, did play a big role in the relief there. Obviously, a lot of ties down to Puerto Rico. Um, speaking of Gover- Governor Hochul, uh, she this week announced a $5.5 million plan to install cameras in every subway car. Her quote is, do you think Big Brother is watching you on the subways? You're right. Um, my question, though, is as we learned with the shooter earlier this year in Sunset Park, the cameras have to be on to be effective. So I know that was an issue. There, there are cameras in stations. Sometimes they're not turned on. So that's a concern. You know, we didn't even have a surveillance photo of the suspect right. um, after everything that happened. Well, as we brought up in previous podcasts, I mean, there's certain communities that obviously have effective working cameras, working stations, yes. working police officers, and other stations that are just completely abandoned. And then back to Mayor Eric Adams, it was reported this week that his chief of staff, Frank Carone, will leave by the end of the year. And First Deputy Mayor Lorraine Grillo might be on her way out too. So, Katie, let's start with that. What does that mean for the Adams administration, if anything? Because, I mean, in many ways, people say Frank Carone is is the not-so-silent hand behind uh, Mayor Adams, and he'll be able to uh, influence so many varying lobbying efforts and organizations uh, without sort of the constraints of being a New York City employee. So what does this mean for Eric Adams moving forward and Frank Carone and his power, I guess, in New York City for the next few years as he works on re-election and so many other things? I think you said it right. I, I mean, someone like Frank Carone, who is a close ally of the mayor, I think he's powerful with or without this chief of staff title. Mm -hmm. And if anything, I could imagine if you've been a very successful lawyer who has the benefits of being politically connected previously, he probably felt really constrained by the the laws governing yourself as a municipal employee. You know, we all as reporters foiled for his schedule and he was like, I don't, I'll show you guys my schedule. I don't care. Um, he Did didn't understand. Yeah, we saw it. You know, he's, he, they had a conference call with us to talk about it. He's very open about certain things. You know, when you just see him around City Hall and he kind of has this like, oh, this is how I approach things that is rare in government. But also, um, I think some of those constraints probably he felt confined, I, I would guess, because yes. this is someone who's enjoyed a very charmed life, um, you know, earned in his own way. But he has the political connections. He can call up the mayor. It's not like January 1st of 2023, he will no longer be connected to the mayor. He's going to be working mm-hmm. on the reelection campaign. 
And I think there, you know, there were lots of rumblings that he would only stay a year. As for Lorraine Grillo, she's been in government for a very, very long time, very, very competent and effective. And and her too, you know, I think people had, you know, people had said, oh, she's only going to stay a year kind of as a courtesy, get things up for Mayor Adams and then maybe retire, you know, enjoy life beyond the stress of government. Um, but I don't see it as like this mass exodus of people leaving. This is what happens, I think, in, a, in an administration. Um, I mean, it certainly shows that Mayor Adams is very concerned, as we saw with the fundraising he's been doing this year. Mm-hmm. He's very focused on his reelection, yeah. fundraising, getting a lot of money in. And, and, and from there, I know I saw Joe Biden this week had a fundraiser for something with Eric Adams. So they're very into that. And Frank Corona will be taking that over. I don't know who or if anyone will take over this chief of staff role when he leaves at the end of the year. But I, yeah, I don't see it as this huge um, deluge of people leaving. Right. Trouble well, in the atom, at least in terms of, of people leaving. I think there's lots of other stuff that could be <laughs> troublesome right. about the administration, but it's not that. Well, I always tell folks, you know, when you're a public servant, it's really hard work if you're actually doing the job right. So staying a year is exhausting, especially in the position that, you know, Grillo and Corona are in. Um, you know, I'm always amazed at people who are public servants for such a long time. It's like you go at this pace yeah. uh, that is just, you know, sometimes superhuman. So the I don't see it as a mass exodus. I do think a lot of people either burn out after a year or two, or they were just like, hey, I'll come in, help you get your sea legs, and then I'm going about my business. I think Frank Caron, as you said, has a lot more freedom without all the constraints. I mean, there are a lot of rules uh, in the institutions when you're trying to run a government, as there yeah. should be. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, I, he probably is smart enough to recognize the longer he stays uh as a as a city employee in that capacity, um, the leaning on the lines of legality can get a little fuzzy, especially when you have, you know, reporters who are, are trying to do their jobs and, and making sure everything's on the up and up. I think it is fascinating, though, that Eric Adams, because he does remind me of Donald Trump in this way, it seemed as though the minute he was elected, he was like, okay, I know they're going to be coming for me with re-election. So, like, that is always a priority. Whereas it seems like in the past, other folks kind of wait until after the 50% mark. Mm-hmm. After like the half, t- you know, halftime. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, let me think about reelect. It seems like Eric Adams, you know, damn near February 1st was like, all right, <laughs> what's reelect looking like? Because you know that there's going to be someone to the left of him if the progressives can organize themselves and, and solidify one particular candidate. You know, obviously the argument was always, well, if you add up, you know, Maya Wiley and Catherine Garcia, they beat Eric Adams. I was like, yeah, but funny how elections don't work that way. We don't get to add up second and third place to see who yeah, beat first. <laughs> like that's actually, hey, P.S., I know I teach intro to politics, but that's clearly not how elections work. People but love I, hypotheticals. I mean, listen, um, and hoop dreams. So, but I do think that he's keenly aware that... As a black man, I think Eric Adams would say that. As a black man, as a as someone who has a unique style, as someone who's more of a centrist and willing to work with Republicans and all different types of uh, savory and unsavory characters, I think he's pretty much assuming that 2025 will be uh, folks coming for him um, pretty aggressively. And if the, the left can organize themselves, which we have yet to see, um, looking at District 10, uh, he could he could be in a bit of trouble. Um, And so I think that's why he's very worried about the optics, which is so interesting to me, though, Katie, because he's concerned about optics, yet and still he's at zero bond and hanging out with convicted felons all the time. Like, that's the piece that doesn't make sense to me when it comes to this particular mayor. I don't think he would see that as um, in conflict, you know? Mm -hmm. I think he thinks his... 
I mean, I've repeated it so many times out with the boys up with the men. You could judge on whether, (laughs) whether they're both effective, but I believe mayor Adams in, in what he said and his actions and in his words. Yeah. He goes out, he enjoys nice restaurants. He has his favorite spots. He's a cheerleader, booster, whatever you want to say for the city. He's a nightlife mayor, even though we had a nightlife mayor. But then he's also up and he's being effective. And he's, you know, he was talking yesterday, um, right before he got the Brewster um, shot. And I saw you stole the sign. I saw you stole the sign. It it wasn't stolen, it was given. I (laughs) want to be clear. It was given to us. I asked and the health department gave it to us. So it's now in the press room. Both signs. It's in the press room at City Hall. They look Oh, I thought you were going to bring it home. No. And have it in your your bathroom. Like, you know Imagine you came to my apartment and there were just like city signs everywhere. That's that's weird. That's that's, that's a ticket for someone to like turn around and go, I'm good. Thanks. Um, I was trying to get people to stay in the apartment, not run away. Um... But no, in his, you know, he said yesterday, no one ever talks about the great team I, I mm-hmm. compiled with my five female deputy mayors. He never brings up Phil Banks' other deputy mayor. Uh, no one ever talks about all the good we're doing. I don't see other people stepping up for migrants the way we are. I'm doing all that, you know, I'm leading the city out of a crisis, trying to do the, uh, do the best job I can as we face these fiscal challenges. No one ever talks about that. All they want to talk about, blah, 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 you know. So I don't think he sees it as... Mm-hmm. And I also would argue, too, with some... Everyday New Yorkers, as former Mayor de Blasio would always use as a phrase to mean everyone but the press, I don't know how much (laughs) they care. And this isn't everyone. Plenty of people care that he's out at the clubs, partying, whatever. They make fun of his obsession with swagger. But I also think some people think he's doing a fine job and they don't care what he does at 10 p.m. and midnight, whatever. Right. Well, I think a lot of people also are just so excited to finally have a mayor who feels like he wants to be mayor. I mean, I know that, you know, there's... We'll talk about this, obviously, on many, many more podcasts to come. And I want to shift gears really quickly. But Mm -hmm. I do think that a lot of people feel finally that they have a mayor who's actually excited to be a New Yorker and in New York in ways that, you know, de Blasio for the last six years of his tenure just felt like he wanted to be anywhere but New York. It's like, I want to I mean, his whole tenure, his two terms, you know, as soon as 2014 hit, he was talking about one of the I states, no, no, uh, Iowa going Iowa. in, you know, he wanted yeah. to be and he wanted to be anywhere but here. So, right. Okay. So let's shift gears really quickly and go to Kathy Hochul, who's basically like, hey, y'all, <laughs> Big Brother is here. Get into <laughs> it, get over it. Like, don't clutch your pearls. Yes, we're going to have cameras on the subways. I'm really curious um, to see how this plays out because, in so many ways, there are a lot of New Yorkers who are just like, I feel like we're in a police state. I feel over-policed. I feel, yeah. you know, uh, over-surveilled. And this is not a great thing. And then there are other folks who are like, have you been on the subway lately? I need some cameras that are working, not just on the subway, but in the stations. And I want to be able to find someone, whether it's a, a terrorist attack or just a personal, you know, knife-wielding someone who just has beef or a mental issue. And then I think that there's this, like, really interesting conversation that always reminds me of, I think it was the second debate um, where I feel like the debate where Maya Wiley lost the race, mm-hmm. where there's a question about policing on the subway, and she said no, she would not want to increase police on the subway. And I felt like there were a lot of liberals and progressives and left-leaning Democrats who were like, yeah, I don't like police in theory, except for when I'm on the subway after 9 p.m., or there's someone who's having a breakdown on the subway, and actually, I don't mind police. So I'm curious to see if this will be a similar type debate where 
there are folks who don't like this idea of cameras everywhere and over-policing and, or over-police state, that type of feel, but at the same time are just like, well, it's not the worst thing because if something goes down, at least we can find this person more quickly. Yeah, and, and I think that's, it is the larger conversation of the root of all, of most crime, right? You know, if there's mm-hmm. someone who's in a mental crisis on the subway and who is committing a crime as a result of that, will cameras or even more police help? Or is it that larger issue of, is that person getting the help and resources that they need? Most likely not. That's why they're on the subway. That's why they are behaving in the way that they are. Um, and I know Kathy Hoch, the governor said, uh, Governor Kathy Hoch, I'm calling her Kathy like she's my friend, um, said, <laughs> hey girl, hey. <laughs> said um, that cameras might also kind of make someone smaller, technically crime, right? Maybe you wouldn't tag up a subway car if you know that there's a camera on. Um, but again, it comes down to, okay, what's a camera going to capture? A crime in progress so you know what the person looks like? Um, you could argue that maybe if we had more police to stop this stuff, but how effective are they actually in preventing crime, um, especially when it is being caused by someone who is in mental distress or having a serious issue? Um, and then we get, I mean, that subway shooting in the spring, when I was, so, th- so there were cameras, mm-hmm. but they weren't on? Mm-hmm. So we're sitting at a press conference in Sunset Park right now, and none of you guys can tell us what this person looks like. Not even like a gender, right, of the suspect. (laughs) That's what I said. You know, what? Like, you're here doing a platitude talk about how we got to get guns off the street. It's like none of you guys can tell us what this person looks like. And we're all just here. And and the person is still out on the loose. And we're all here like sitting ducks packed together in a press conference. Well, I hope it's not as ineffective as the the releases I get from universities. You know, I, I get them from Columbia, from NYU, and from Fordham. And I think that they're so... I, I have no idea why they do it this way, but they never say the race, the height, the gender. They're just like, they were wearing an orange sweatshirt and a blue backpack. And I'm like, so this is not helpful because it could be... It could be a six-year-old. It could be a 90-year-old with an orange sweatshirt and a blue backpack. You've told me nothing with this clothing description. They give you no other description. And I don't know why that is. I have my own thoughts as to why I think they do that. But it's it's never a descriptor where I can be on the lookout beyond clothing. Well, I think in the media, we would get a lot of, you know, uh, when I worked at a TV station on the website where we get viewer emails, you know, people are like, you, mm. you guys don't want to say the race. It is complicated because sometimes yeah. from a surveillance photo, you can't determine what someone's race is. You can't, there are descriptions, but all this kind of stuff is complicated. But yeah, I mean, even if it's just like, can, can I get a height, a range? J- just can I get a rough color? Rough, rough idea. I need to get like, the hat. Because if they know. if they take off the orange sweatshirt, then you have not helped me. Yeah, yeah. Usually they have clear enough photos where you yourself can determine this person, okay. you could guess a race, but you know, right. I understand it. it is complicated and it can be a little fraught trying to determine someone's race from so, a blurry, often blurry, you know, my right. joke is when they want to take your going 36 and a 25, it's like a 4k camera, but the, right. sometimes these surveillance photos are like high eight film. It, well, it looks like UFOs. It's like, yeah, Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. There's just someone floating there. Okay. So before we bring in Harry Siegel, speaking to Dodi Stewart, to talk about her brilliant piece about the city that does sleep. Um, you know, and I've lived in Boston, I've lived in London, I've lived in uh, Philly, I've lived in outside of Chicago where it's like, you know, things shut down at 10, 11 o'clock. I mean, I feel like New Yorkers in many ways pay to be in a city 
that is essentially 24 hours. That's our reputation. You yeah. can come here. You can, and it's not even like, oh, I have to get like pizza and hot dogs at 3 a.m. It's like, no, no, no. You can go to like a proper restaurant, you know, and get a sit down quality meal 24 hours a day. You can hear music 24 hours a day. It's like, and even in the five boroughs, it's not even one or two neighborhoods. So I'm really, I've been, you know, I talked to my students about this the other day. Like, what does it mean for a city that is, shifting in its reputation, not just the economic consequences, but like, what does it mean for tourists who are just like, oh, well, I mean, if they're shutting down at 11, like we can do that at home. Like, yeah. I'm so curious, you know, when when Dodai had the list of restaurants that used to be 24 hours that now are just like, yeah, I mean, we shut it at 11 or 12. I mean, it, it doesn't make economic sense for us to stay open 24 hours if folks are you know, more interested in having dinner at six than 10. And maybe it's just because I'm getting older. I, I Her piece really resonated with me because the idea of when I go and try and make a reservation, it's like, we only have five o'clock or 1030 as options. And I'm like, well, obviously I'm, it's the 5 p.m. Like yeah. early bird special all day long. I am not. Who, at, like me at 1030 is me taking a nap at the table, me yawning in your face yeah. the entire time. I'm like the worst guest I'll just be ever. asleep. Um, no, I think, and what was so interesting about her piece too, it's also these 24-hour gyms don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. And of course, the reasons that her reporting found obviously, were- obviously, we, we totally went to a 24-hour gym. <laughs> hey, yeah. When you think of 24-hour gym, you so, think of Chrissy and Katie yeah. working out at 3 a.m. Just lifting at 3 a.m., yeah. Um, I did always want to know who was going there. I guess people who were shift workers or, but anyway. Um, it was staffing, obviously. Mm-hmm. It was some some restaurants and businesses said they were concerned about the safety of their mm-hmm. employees traveling in the middle of the night or whenever their shifts ended. Um, I don't know if it's a shift in behavior because I do think it's a, if you build it, they will come type of thing. I think in a city of 8.5, I forget, million. I always rounded up to nine for our Yeah, a city of nearly 9 pe- million people, there's always going to be a demand for late night food or even like someone's late night food is is also someone else's early morning food. Mm-hmm. You know, a 24-hour diner, you, you have that overlap. You might have someone who's getting up very, very early who wants to go get breakfast at 4 a.m. at the same time as someone is leaving a place. Mm-hmm. You know, New York City's bars closing at 4. When I've been to other cities, when these bars close, I mean, I was upset last weekend and the bar closed at 10. <laughs> I was like, 10? But then I understood because there's no lights on the roads and I had to go home and pitch black. Um, this is... What makes New York so special? You know, I used to even go to some bars that would close the door and you'd be able to stay till 6 a.m. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is what, and, and I think it's just all of a, us and and businesses were all adjusting to post-pandemic life. It was o- only a year ago or so that we um, couldn't even fully dine in mm-hmm. restaurants. So mm-hmm. I think as things slowly regain, you know, it, it, it took overnight things shut down, but it'll take a lot more time, I believe, for things to adjust um, accordingly. Well, then let's, I think that's a perfect place to bring in Harry Siegel talking to Dodi Stewart of the New York Times about the city that now sleeps. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel, and we are back for a in-person interview, something that got lost a bunch over the course of the pandemic, at least on this pod with Dodai Stewart, uh, now a writer at large, which is like, I picture it as like a secret, awesome, roving columnist uh, for the New York Times. <laughs> that sounds accurate. Yeah, it's nice. Hey, welcome back. So I've been uh, on this tear about like the need for less uh, 
fewer takes, uh, which I think is widely shared, uh, but but also just generally more journalism that gets at like the uh, experiential level, like how people's lives are actually lived, um, as opposed to uh, uh, things that are sort of focused on policy, and then you have one example life that's like sort of a placeholder for the policy and stuff like that. And since you've been in this new role, um, I'm going to read a couple of the headlines. Um, <laughs> in NYC apartments, the ants go marching up, the final days in New York's Wild West outdoor dining scene, and this week, uh, in the city that never sleeps, some doors now close at 10 p.m., and, and I'm, just as a reader, I've been excited because I feel like you've been actually scratching that, that, that itch. Uh, the vibe check comes to mind as well, just about how New Yorkers are actually experiencing the, uh, the city. Um, uh, I'm not going to say I'm old. I don't know if anyone else is. But uh, I was hoping you, you tell listeners a little about um, reporting this city, uh, you know, breaking night, and uh, the reasons that a lot of the places, I think in Manhattan in particular, that in my mental map had, had perennially been 24 hours and you knew you could go to at 4 a.m., you know, you go there now and it's like, wait a minute, it's closed. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I uh, have only been in this job since June, but I've lived in New York since I was seven years old, as you know. And, um, I, you know, there's definitely been a few different shifts and this one is notable I think because there there absolutely were places that were reliably late night and known as a late night option um Wohop I think is kind of legendarily <laughs> a 4am 3am kind of place to go in Chinatown and they close now at 10 um Veselka also an iconic place that was open 24 hours that now closes at 11 on weeknights and midnight on weekends. And yeah, it just feels really different, but it's also um, interesting to see that it doesn't mean that people are in bed sleeping. (laughs) They're just going somewhere else to find their midnight snacks. Um, But the people that I spoke to, the business owners, the reasons really varied in terms of why they decided to cut back on the hours for Wohop in Chinatown, especially. Um, uh, I talked to David Lung and he said that uh, a lot of the staff is older and some, when they were closed, um, some of them uh, decided to retire and he said that he also doesn't feel that it's safe for them to go home very, very late at night. There were like a lot of anti-Asian hate crimes in Chinatown and in the city in general. And he felt um, as their employer that it would be terrible to ask them to go home in the middle of the night. They don't live in Chinatown, a lot of the staff. So they have to take a train to Queens or Brooklyn and it's, you know, for him, he felt like it wasn't worth it to ask that. That 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 really struck out to me that you had people who were maybe commuting back to different neighborhoods, maybe Chinatowns in Queens and in Brooklyn, and it's just like you can't t- have people taking the trains at uh, four a.m. Yeah, just I mean, it feels different 
now and I think post, you know, um, there was a time during the pandemic that the subways were shut down and, you know, they're back running 24 hours. But I, I do think that people feel that it's a little bit different than it used to be. Fewer people are out and it feels, even if the crime is not more, it feels, um, it might feel more risky um, to be taking the train late. Um, Christopher Bananos, who actually has a piece up right now about uh, the lobby at 60 Wall Street, which, full disclosure, we literally had a conversation in our editorial meeting at the city one day, like we've got to do a story on this crazy lobby and what's going to happen here, and then your story showed up the next day. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, uh, but right before that, he actually had a piece up earlier this week, um, um, basically arguing weirdly, not at four in the morning, but that during, say, you know, 8 a.m. to 10 p.m., we've reached a Goldilocks sort of moment on the trains which actually feels in some ways right to me. Like there's enough people that there are, you know, eyes on the street or in the platform or whatever. It's not weirdly hollowed out or empty, but you can usually get a seat and it's not suffocatingly busy. And, I, I, you know, you're also, you're a New Yorker, you know, like any place that's like works and is nice and can accommodate you, you know, eventually it's going to hit that Yogi Berra point of like, nobody goes there anymore. It's too popular. <laughs> Yeah, but I think that's right. I think, you know, there's there are more um, staggered starting work times or people do it. I, I do my first meetings at home usually. Like I have a 9 a.m. and a 10, 15. Um, and I'll do one or both of those at home and then travel to the office. And yeah, it feels... Um, it feels not bad at all. And I will say when we were out recording this story, I was out with a photographer and her assistant and um, we had, we took some cabs, we took some Ubers and we had one corner that we couldn't find a cab and the Uber was going to be like eight minutes away. So we were like, you know what, we'll just take the subway. And it was probably 1 a.m. Um, we were going from 34th to... I think 14th and um, yeah, it was, <laughs> it was lively on the train. There were a lot of people and um, in various states of, you know, being served alcohol. Um, somebody played some music <laughs> for our ride and um, was maybe like a, about to, um, you know, audition a rap for us. And we, right. but we got off the train. So the hatchet guy at the 24-hour McDonald's at Delancey did this incredible interview with the New York Post where, uh, as a crazy man swinging a hatchet around a restaurant, he made a series of, I thought, interesting, fairly sensible points that are real, like, Rorschach test for your politics. He's like, you know, guys messed me up 10 years ago. Um, don't mean I've been carrying this hatchet ever since. You won't be having a hatchet, not a gun, right? Um it's wild. Uh, yeah. I mean, that... Um, and that McDonald's, of course, it didn't get wild with the pandemic. McDonald's, I used to live on Delancey Street, and that McDonald's has been really just like a, a magnet for, like a freak magnet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and for, you know, late night dining and all kinds of things yeah. um, for at least 
at least 20 years, right? Maybe longer. As long as I can remember. Yeah. The West 3rd Street McDonald, too. R.I.P. R.I.P. <laughs> um, so, so reading your piece... I had no idea that Veselka only became 24 hours in, in the late 80s because that's when I started showing up there. So, you know, yeah. it's like first day of school. It's like if it's there, it seems to you like it's been forever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, then, you know, this is it's such a funny um, it's, it's such a funny city in a way because I think however you encounter it is the is the real New York. And then if a few years go by and something changes, you're like, I miss the old New York. And, but what you saw might've been the new New York for somebody else. And, you know, but Veselka, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's history is, is long. And, um, I think that, uh, at that, that area of, you know, kind of a little Ukrainian area, there's a Ukrainian dance hall, music hall. Yeah, down the um, down the street, yep. and yeah, and I think it was sort of you know it's near NYU, it's near Cooper Union. There are theaters around there. Some you know La Mama is not far, and um, this I think the theater for the New City is over there. And anyway, it always had a late night crowd, and especially NYU students. And um, it's I don't know somehow twenty four hours makes made sense. And the East Village was very. You know, a lot of late nights there, and um, yeah, it turned into like a late night hotspot. So it's crazy to think of it closing at midnight. And, and you, you mentioned in the piece that, that the, the owners say they're having trouble finding help. Uh, you know, that, that can work those hours, and something else that jumped out to me, and I hadn't thought about. Um, but there is, it's interesting, there's this little Ukraine that there's like the, the, the inverse of Little Italy because yeah. there's actually a lot of Ukrainians around, but it's not like a, a, a sentimentalized yeah. thing at this point. But there's all these little theaters there, and that had been part of the late night traffic. And then just like you're zooming in in the morning, you know, it's like, well, if you're auditioning, you can do that from Kansas or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, he, he mentioned that, um, you know, the service industry and the theater industry have been linked for a long time. And this is how people can have a flexible, you know, way to make a living while they're auditioning in New York. And, you know, it, it brings in people who want to be on Broadway or musicians who are, you know, other types of theater crew and, you know, obviously actors and, um, yeah, he said, that's what he said. <laughs> if you can audition on Zoom, like, why why make your way here? And so he felt that was part of the reason that um, it was hard to find people. But he also said that, you know, it's hard to find people in general and that the um, overnight shift is, you know, is, the, is always the hardest one. Um, but I did speak to an economist who said that, uh, you know, if you're having trouble finding people to take a job, maybe the job's not that great. <laughs> he said there actually is a robust workforce out there looking for work. And um, so, you know, you have to consider that as well, that, you know, working the late night shift, doing dishes or waiting tables for drunk people um, isn't maybe that attractive. <laughs> people. I think it's nothing both sides. So if some of the 24-hourness has shifted out of Manhattan, which had the most dramatic population loss during the pandemic, and you could see it in the garbage, for instance, way less of it and all that, like, 
where is still alive and or where has some of this shifted to? Yeah, I mean, there still is a, there for sure is a late night um, element in downtown Manhattan, the Lower East Side uh, has, you know, Katz's is 24 hours on Fridays and Saturdays. And there's a really thriving um, food truck scene down there as well for the people who are stumbling out of bars at, you know, 3 and 4 a.m. There's definitely something to eat. Um, And when we were at Katz's at 3 a.m., the manager there said it's the calm before the storm (laughs) because he was expecting more people and it was already half full and there was a line to order a pastrami sandwich. So um, that's part of it that maybe previously, you know, people thought of, you know, Chinatown and and maybe a little East Village is more 24 hours. And I would say that, you know, there's more on the Lower East Side now. And then the other scenes are in are in Brooklyn and Queens. And I think, you know, we went to Bushwick um, where there's a club called House of Yes. And um, there are a few bars around there as well. And um, yeah, we saw probably eight to 10 different food trucks and they all had lines of people waiting for food. And this was like 4, 4.15, 4.30 a.m. And they all had little improvised dining areas out front with like a folding table and some folding chairs. So maybe people aren't, um, you know, <laughs> sitting inside a restaurant, but they're still sitting down and having some tacos at 4.30 a.m. And I asked one guy at the uh, halal Mexican food truck, um, you know, when do you leave? And he said, when you leave, you know, and he's talking about all the people out front. So um, and another guy said that he closed at five, but as we were leaving at five, he was still serving customers. So yeah, <laughs> there's a scene, there's a scene. Did reporting this out make you, I'm making some assumptions here, but miss breaking night more often, uh, or, or, or be like, oh man, sleep is lovely. I, I love to sleep. I really do. I love to sleep. I had some good. I had some good um, all-night years in my life, and um, I wouldn't say that I missed it, uh, but it was really interesting to experience it in a different way, which was, like, totally sober with a notebook (laughs) 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 and a co-worker. You know, that's not how you usually do it. So you did the vibe check. The vibes are good. That was nice, and I think a correction to a lot of real dour shit about uh, the state of the city. Simultaneously, not just the hatchet guy, and maybe it is an improvement. Um, there's some really ominous signs, and I'm guessing some of the owners you talked to may have discussed these about what's coming up, just in terms of like arguably levels of chaos and disruption, and I think sort of unquestionably like uh, really scary economic circumstances ahead for the businesses that managed to survive the pandemic and the shutdown and all of that. And I'm just curious, as you were, you were talking to, to, to these owners, what their uh, sort of outlook was having, having made it to this point uh, about like the state of their businesses and the city and, and, and your sense of that. And if the vibes are the same at 3 AM or that that's a different set of registers. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I uh, 
I will say that um, it really there was there was a lot of variety in talking to people. I you know um, David Long from from Wohop was like I don't see it in the cards of us ever going twenty four hours again. Um, but then Jason Burchard at Viselco was like, we'll see, maybe, maybe, you know, and he seemed more open to it. And, um, I think, uh, I talked to, um, the owner of the donut pub, which is open 24 hours. You don't, you can't sit all night, uh, from I think 10 to five, um, it's to go only. They have some stools in there, but it's to go only. And he said that. That was because they had been getting, um, you know, a more unsavory element late at night. And he said, you know, there were homeless people who wanted to come and sit or use the bathroom. And he felt that it, um, you know, was uncomfortable for the customers. And, you know, so for him, there was sort of a difference. Um, But I think... uh, I think it's tough to say. I felt like, you know, some people didn't seem optimistic, um, but the Donut Pub guy was like, as soon as all the, you know, white-collar offices where everyone's back, and, you know, as soon as, like, businesses and high-rises have people really back in the office, you're going to see a lot more things staying open later. You know, he was like, "These, these people have... Um, money to spend on business dinners, then they go out for drinks afterwards, and they're part of like what drives the late night. Um, and I thought that was an interesting point. You know, he was he happens to come from a finance background. He founded the Donut Pub, but he's a he's a he's um he works at like a capital management firm. <laughs> um, and uh, but he says he did the donuts first. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but his 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 view of how, like, uh, you know, really old-school finance business helps fuel a lot of New York. And he was saying, you know, these are the people who buy blocks of sports, you know, buy, have a box of, in a sporting arena and or buy blocks of Broadway tickets. And so he felt that, like, the more that kind of white-collar business came back, yeah. that, um, like, some other things, will it'll trickle down to some other aspects of the city. So it was interesting. Yeah. Shout out to the uh, cocaine dealers in Dallas as Goldman Sachs is opening a big new headquarters there. Like, I hope I hope uh, the cocaine dealers here continue to have plenty of finance clients um, and that, that 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 trickles down to the rest of the economy. So, Dada, thank you. It's always great to have you uh, uh, on FAQ and um, and in person. Um this is this is the tough closer. We have just brought in uh, um, brand new Bronx and Queens reporters. Shout out to uh, Jonathan Custodio and Heidi Chu, and they have been discussing which is, in fact, the best borough. <laughs> I notice that you have a two one two ring. Yes. So so I, I'm reckoning. And a and a girl hat and necklace, which was my old blog before I worked at Jezebel Girl Hat and like instead of Manhattan. Yeah. So, 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 please explain to these excellent young reporters why why they are so very wrong, and, and what why Manhattan. I, I think you were wrong, by the way. Is first. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not. Um, this is like for me. This is hometown pride. 
and I'm not putting it above <laughs> other boroughs. I lived in the Bronx before. I lived in uh, Queens before. I lived in Manhattan City. Um, but I you mean, choose to live in Manhattan now, correct? <laughs> I do live in Manhattan now. And um, look, I, you know, for me, <laughs> of course, my hometown is the best town in the world. And, I, you know, I think it's clear that the where, if you have Central Park and um, all the Broadway theaters and uh, Times Square, people flock to see these things that that's part of Manhattan's charm but um, I would never I would never say anything bad about any of the boroughs not even that <laughs> that is such a perfect kicker <laughs> I had a response but we just got to leave it there look they said Prospect Park Olmstead said Prospect Park was the masterpiece yes, um, yes. Times Square, New York Times Square, where you cannot buy a newspaper in the pharmacy is there no newsstands left, is the worst place in the world. And thank God those fucking people aren't coming to Brooklyn. Mostly. More of them are. But, but yeah, yeah. I had to just try a little trouble at the end there. That's all right. F-A-Q. Thank you for listening to FAQ NYC. We're now part of The City, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc slash donate if you'd like to pitch in. We're also headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research. And we're also a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Critics, and Artists online at thebrick.house. A special thank you to our guest, Jodi Stewart from the New York Times, and thank you as always to Adam Kamara, who mixed and edited this episode. Be kind, be cool, stay warm, stay well, and we'll see you next week.